0: Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley, flying solo this time, so let's dive straight in. The podcast has got a few reviews, which is fantastic, it's great to uh, hopefully be discovering more listeners. So we got a review in New Scientist, both on the website and on the print version, I've not seen the print version yet, and we were in The Week, both on their website and the print version, and the UK and the US version, so uh, we've seen a spike in numbers, so any new listeners out there... Uh, welcome, I hope you
1: enjoy it. So do I. G- <sighs> How long have you been there? <laughs> I've been here the whole time, Tom. <laughs> I've been listening <laughs> the entire time I've been here. Just oh, cough or something, I man. Don't say, just what jump have you in. Been doing? What have Don't you been just... doing all this time? <sighs>
0: I've, been, I've been podcasting best I can. And I've been listening. It's been fascinating. I've learned a lot. How long were you away, mate? Honestly. What was that record in the end?
1: 88 days, door to door. That is a long 88 time Eighty-eight days, say. 85 days on the ship with three hours off in the middle.
0: Well, as ever then, (laughs) I'm joined by the Professor Alan Jameson all of a sudden. Hi. Welcome back.
1: Good reviews as well, new scientists, I thought. I like the one in the week as well. It describes the the moon analogy as being elegantly dismantled. I quite like that. It reminds me of a high school report card I saw recently my mother gave me, and I was reading it, and it was from when I was in sixth year at school, and it said, Alan's performance this year was disappointing, but not disastrous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) can i i've started like what? putting some of the quotes from the reviews on the website can i use that one
1: yeah and actually cite your sixth form teacher yeah yeah disappointing but not disastrous the deep sea <laughs> podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i like that i thought that was wonderful
0: okay let's jump into some deep sea news there's quite a lot going on at the moment so i had to be a little bit selective one that i enjoyed due to my bias towards deep sea fish is that among the bony fishes the deep sea has evolved an incredibly wide range of body types, so there's twice the body shape variation than is found in shallow water. So the deep sea has twice the body variation found in shallow waters. They tend to be shaped for slow and periodic swimming while conserving energy, whereas the shallow water forms tend to be strong, sustained swimming and favour manoeuvrability. Sort of certainly within the reef fish. Uh, so this really feeds back to the visual interaction hypothesis, which have we have we spoken about, Alan?
1: I don't think so, but it sounds very familiar mm, it, it's... for lots of reasons. <clears throat> it goes back to that point I was making before about a lot of the stuff we talk about deep sea has got nothing really to do with being deep. It's mostly to do with being dark, which is a function of depth, of course, but it's the darkness which is causing things to be weird or different from the surface because there's no point being fast and strong and you know super powerful fish when you live in perpetual darkness. So then suddenly everything changes.
0: Yeah. A tuna will chase down its prey from tens of metres and its prey may hopefully become aware of it and be able to counteract that at sort of metres distance, whereas in the deep sea you're probably in the range of centimetres, you know, a few inches before you're aware of something close to you unless it's
1: lit up. So it totally... I used to explain this in my lectures in, uh, using the analogy of uh, stabbing somebody in a football field. They used to pick on whoever was on the front row and said, if I wanted to stab you, and then they're looking fear in their eyes and says, well, if you're stood in the centre spot of a football field and I'm in the goals, and I say, right, I'm going to stab you, if it was during the day and i just come charging at you with a knife, imagine the metabolic rate and the physiology involved in that. We'd be running around that thing and he'd be all over the place and i am running after him and it's all about who's going to be the fastest and the most manoeuvrable and everything else. But if we did it in the middle of the night and he sat in the centre spot and I sat in the goalpost and I'd go, right, I'm going to come and stab you, all he has to do is avoid me. Now suddenly hmm. that situation is very, 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 very different. That's the point. And all you've done is switch the lights off.
0: Yeah, the whole. I've never, I've never stabbed an
1: undergraduate either. Just saying, I've never stabbed an undergraduate. But it's it good to put it in their mind.
0: It's good to like, have them considering yeah. that as an option, maintain control. Um, so, yeah, the, the visual interaction hypothesis was a big driver or assumed to be a big driver in this difference. And then there's also the less complex habitat, there's less maneuverability. So, in the certainly the reefs, complex 3D environments, you tend to get. Uh, I mean, like butterfly fish are the classic example. You get fish with deep bodies and narrow bodies, and high manoeuvrability. They tend to use their pectoral fins more than their their tail. And it's all about navigating these complex environments. And we know firsthand from trying to design fish traps for the deep sea that deep sea fish are not good at interacting with complex structures. And
1: you even published a paper on that, Alan. I did, because they're really annoying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They don't behave the way we'd like them to behave.
1: It was originally supposed to be an engineering project about how to build a really interesting oxygen respirometry chamber, but it ended up being more papers on fish behaviour than it was the actual technology itself, because they just, frustratingly, some fish go into full tactile mode, so you put something down, and they just explore the thing, they don't act naturally anymore, they're just all over it. they're just rubbing their barbels all over it, and there's other fish that come across any 3D structure whatsoever, and they're just like, nah. Decapods are a good, a good example of that, the big prawns. They are so yeah, sketchy. Anything they come touches across those anything antenna. at all. And they're just like, nah, not having that, and then they just go. And so on. So it's trying to second guess how the animals interact with your gear is quite interesting. And that's how actually I did, started becoming a bit of a biologist. That's what's triggered the whole thing. Getting into the mind of Building the fish. Building big ridiculous apparatus to go down to the abyssal plains and then suddenly realising that none of this is going to work unless you understand what it is that you're trying to catch.
0: Yeah. It all it was all born from trying to get a fish to go in a box.
1: Pretty much, yeah. I'm trying to work out why is it when you put a deep sea fish in a solid box, why did it pass out? That's a good one. I've got a video of them. They swim into this box and then they just literally pass out, roll across the bottom and then fall at the other end and then go, Whoa, and then swim off again. It seems to be because of Well, if you think about the fish, has have got the lateral line down the sides of their bodies and then they've got the barbell and they've got all these other ways of orientating into the current and you spent a couple of tens of million years on the abyssal planes where you only have a down and you don't have any 3D structure. Suddenly you're in a box. And down is down, down is also up, down is left, down is right, down is front and down is back. And everything just overloads and the fish goes, everything is down. and then All of your movement is creating
0: out. an echo when it never used to. So your lateral line is picking up your own movement as the mm. waves sort of bounce off the inside of the container. And yeah, it just gets totally overwhelmed with stimulus and faints, kind of just shuts down.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's disappointing, but not disastrous.
0: <laughs> well, it is if they end up in a trap and we get
1: them. Yeah, true. Not for us, though. Well, what other news you got?
0: Well, I just I wanted to include a quote on this one because I just quite liked that it was a little bit casual. So they were talking about uh, in the deep sea, you end up with sort of the extremes. You end up with long, thin fish and, and then almost round fish. So the, the quote I really liked was, from the extremely elongate to the downright globular, which I, I loved. It's like, they sound annoyed. Wow. It's like, oh, that fish is round and it makes me mad. <laughs>
1: But downright. Someone else globular. thinks it didn't. It didn't fit nicely in the PowerPoint or something like that, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. God, God it for round nicely. ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. The rest Brilliant. of them are all nice and long and neat and all lined up perfectly, and then there's this big fat globular one that just oh,
0: can't put that its on own the figure.
1: Yeah. Um, there
0: is a new species, genus, and family of brittle star. Uh, and if folks aren't familiar with the brittle stars, they're like starfish but with long thin whip-like arms, uh, really common in the deep sea, really well studied, which is why it's amazing that there's a whole new family been discovered. It was off the deep sea mounts around New Caledonia. Weirdly, New Caledonia contains a lot of surviving ancient groups. So they found out that this particular family seems to date back to the Jurassic or the late Triassic. Um, So amazing that this like ancient group has resurfaced. Um, And there's been a lot of chat about the coelacanth actually recently as well. Some scale analysis showed that they get to over 100 years old. So the coelacanth is a lobe-finned fish uh, that was rediscovered in the early uh, 20th century. And both of these things are sort of can be described as kind of a living fossil, but just as a little aside, that term is maybe an oversimplification. It's more about a kind of lineage that we thought had died out that turns out to still be here. So even though there are coelacanth going way back into the fossil record, what we have is modern coelacanth. So it's kind of like thinking that You know, somebody died way back in the First World War, and then you find their great-great-grandchild, and you realize that lineage is still there. It's not that some ancient creature has turned up again. It's the modern version of that line has been sort of rediscovered, and it shows that that line continued when we thought it ended.
1: And I don't think 100 years was
0: too surprising for a deep-sea fish, though. Anything, not for something sort of that right. chunky looking. When you think of the the orange roughy,
1: they get to sort of yeah.
0: 250, don't they? So I, I was kind of like... Oh, yeah, I mean, it it's cool, right. but I'm not,
1: I'm not kind of <laughs> bowled over by... Oh, okay, that's probably perfectly believable. Yeah,
0: it's nice to see the coelacanth sort of get back into the news. It's a good weird fish with lobe finch, which um, then sort of went on to evolve into legs. <laughs> They've got a totally different finch structure, so it's great that we've still got one of those knocking around. Last bit was... Uh, new deep sea sampling device. We are big fans of the bottom of the deep sea, but there is, you know, the biggest habitat on earth, which is the open water. And it's very difficult to work there. Uh, You've got no frame of reference. You've got no boundaries to work with. And the animals are extremely fragile and extremely far apart. So Mesobot coming out of Woods Hole is a new nice little autonomous vehicle, uh, which is sort of all geared around working in the open ocean and orientating itself. And it does a quite a cool thing where you can basically lock it on to a particular organism. So with these giant larvations or a jellyfish or something like that, you could lock it on, you can disengage from it, and the vehicle then will track that animal as it migrates up and down and keeps it sort of within its camera's field of view. And just you can leave it going for sort of days and it will track the migration of these animals. Uh, it's still early days. It still has a little bit of trouble tracking certain items. But no, it's pretty great. And they've sort of designed it with big, uh, slow-moving thrusters so they don't disturb things. It's got very little sort of light profile and an energy profile. So it's minimal disturbance and it kind of drifts along with the animals. So uh, a cool new tool. It'll be exciting to see how that develops. And uh, that's probably all the news we'll have time for because we've got a packed episode. But there is lots of interesting stuff going on right now.
1: Right, so I thought this episode we should speak to lots of people about Submaspels. Just because it's something that we've been doing quite a lot of recently. And to tie up continuing adventures of Vegemite and Haggis as well. So I think we should give Tim a phone anyway see how he's doing. It's been a couple of weeks since we left the ship. So being, we've done quite a few miles actually since we last checked in with the old podcast. And there's a few other people I want to call as well for various reasons. First up... I'll grab the phone and we'll phone down under, which we'll dial Australia and ask for Tim. So here goes. All right, so who better to get on the show to discuss where we left off on the last cruise than Mr. Tim Vegemite McDonald? Hi, Tim. Uh, G'day, Mr. Haggis. How you doing? How was your two-week quarantine? What was the highlight of it? What's the highlight of a two-week quarantine? Um... Vegemite sandwiches. Does the government send you a Vegemite sandwich every day? Of course.
2: Yeah, that's standard practice. In all schools in Australia, you have to eat one Vegemite sandwich Uh a day. It's
0: in the Constitution. And in Ah,
2: quarantine hotels.
1: Right. Well, that's good. Well, it's the same here. When you do quarantine in Scotland, you get a little bit of haggis every day as well. That's just how it works. So anyway, speaking of Vegemite and haggis, the continuing adventures of Vegemite and haggis. So last time we checked in with the podcast, we had just past Indonesia on the way south, but mysteriously didn't mention why we were heading south. So, the big reveal is we went to Australia, as you could probably guess, having the quarantine conversation, but it's a wonderful place. So, what did we do when we got to Australia, Tim? We did lots and lots of diving
2: in all the most Australian-named places we could find. Wallaby Escarpment, Wallaby Zenith Fracture Zone, the Australian Basin, <laughs> just picked out everything. It was named after Australia or Australian animals on the map. And what was the terrace called? Was it Argo
1: Rowley Terrace or something?
2: Yeah, but it was the Wallaby Argo
1: Terrace. Everything just had to be Wallaby. Yeah, so we did uh, what's it? Six dives in the North Australian Basin. That was cool.
2: Yeah, we did six thousand six hundred and fifty. Was there's biggest. not a lot of
1: kangaroos out there. It's all seemed, Wallaby seems to have the monopoly on the sea feature names of Australia.
2: Yeah, I just. Yep. I don't know why that is. Good swimmers, Wallabies.
1: Yeah, so we did six dives on North Australian Basin. There were kind of yeah, trials dives, test dives, a little bit of science and everything else. And then we went to the glorious, beautiful town of Dampier, which was, to be fair, something a little akin to the Mad Max movies. Picked up a science crew, not the full complement because of COVID and then everything else, that we ended up with a reduced science party and we headed out to the Wallaby Zenith on, which I don't know about you, Tim, but I thought those were the coolest dives we'll probably ever do. I
2: also thoroughly enjoyed them. It's extremely dynamic, much more than I thought it was going to be, and a lot more diversity in animals than I was expecting, <clears throat> especially after our last dives in the Philippine Trench, which was uh, comparatively sparse, which is to be expected. It was another 4,000 meters deep. Yeah, the fractures
1: Zone so. was cool because the fractures Zone was a, a real mixed bag of stuff. So the bottom of the the fractures zone itself is very soft sediment. There was a whole bunch of different species level on there. And then the walls of the fragile zone were basically an unbelievably dense manganese polymetallic nodule field, which was one of the spookiest things I think we've ever done. I remember cruising along in the sub around 6,000 meters on a manganese <laughs> nodule field, listening to dead bodies everywhere by corn, thinking <laughs> this, the things don't get any weirder than this.
2: <laughs> yes, I think it was the one time... I've been in a sub where I've thought, I don't like it here. I want to go home. It was just unbelievably spooky.
1: <laughs> it's too I spooky. Have no
2: idea why. Yes, very eerie. And the eyes just couldn't understand what was going on. It was just all the grayscale, the black and the white, black manganese nodules and this white sediment. And they were just the first place we came down on was just this most unbelievably dense, perfectly uniform. Field of perfectly round manganese nodules, as far as you could see with the lights, and it was so disorientating. And you just, oh, we got to some points during the dive, Alan and I, we just had to stop the sub and be like, my eyes just can't comprehend what is happening out there. We just need to stop for a minute, let our eyes rest. It's almost like snow continue, blindness. Yeah, yeah, it was insane. It's the
1: grayscale of it all. Your eye, your eyes start to make the highlights and the low lights shift. Yes, yeah. starved of information. So rather than it being though, like it someone's lost a billion cannonballs, suddenly it started to look like a billion dimples in the seafloor and stuff like that. It really plays with your eyes. That's really interesting. Yeah. But then that dive got even weirder as well because we went up the manganese bit, and we're having a look up there, and uh, it all sort of dropped away at about 4,000 metres or so. And we're like, okay. Things got a bit more sort of rugged and weird looking at the window and it looked like, it kind of looked as if someone had tarmacked a highway down the side of the slope. It's like, what's that? went over it and it did look like it was basically a volcano, an old lava flow, just black, about foot thick, asphalt road. <laughs> so it's just like, oh well. So we sat on that for a bit and then went up the top of that and went up the side of a volcano. Yeah. But again, the, the diversity changed again. So there's there's a whole bunch of species that live on the soft sediment and then there's a whole bunch that live on the manganese. And when you go up to the top of the seamount, contrary to what everyone thinks about seamounts, the top was almost completely void of life. There was just loads of stock sponges, but that, that was about it, really. So the whole the whole area was just really fascinating. Very bizarre. There's stock sponges, though, they were beautiful. Right? Yeah, I was looking at some of the images yesterday. I think it's, it's really quite nice, this sort of juxtaposition of such an unbelievably fragile animal only just clinging on to what appears to be some of the most geologically violent habitat you can find. <laughs> it's just, it's a really weird sort of uh, mix of... Of, uh, not what I expected to see, to be honest.
2: And really tall, just like these vertical cliff faces, almost with these big three meter high, like pinky width stalks holding this big glass sponge on the end. Pure white, just like ghost white against this black rock. It was, you know, it's very bizarre. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I was checking this out yesterday. I was doing, I was lighting everything we did yesterday afternoon, and right enough, it does seem to be an unusually Large number of squat lobsters associated with the stock sponge. Each one seems to have its own little squatty friend. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing
2: or not. Maybe. I mean, I enjoy it. so sort of quite nice to have a big tree in your backyard, mm-hmm. I guess.
1: So, why yeah, not? Yeah, so after the fracture zone, I thought one of the just as equally as interesting was we went over, what did we do? Six dives on the fracture zone, I think, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then we went to the Wallaby Cuvier Escarpment, which It's not a place most people have probably heard of, but it's about 500 miles long and about two to 2,500 meters high. And it's in two steps. There's about a 1,000 meter near vertical wall, then there's a little terrace, and then there's another near vertical 1,000 meter wall on top of that. And what Tim and I did was, on one dive, went to the bottom, and then we basically hopped all the way up the bottom terrace. And then the next day, we dove on the terrace and then hopped all the way up to the top. And it was a bit bizarre as well.
2: Yeah, that second step.
1: Do you remember the, uh, was it hop number three on the second dive, I think it was, was the weirdest one?
2: I think just even when we got to the bottom of the step and there was all those rocks that were sitting on these black rocks that were sitting on this white sediment, which is abnormally white sediment, and they looked like someone had been down there with a shotgun blasting them and just had all their, or they'd all been exploding or something, It all just shards of rock. Scattered across this, and again, it was very black rock and very white sediment, and it was just very—it con- was bizarre. I forgot about that. And yeah, little, the,
1: the exploding rocks. like huh. And remember those? Yeah, and the little
2: round, perfect balls of look like little poos. Like, I'm starting to think they're
1: eggs it. because there's one point where the sub gets close enough to them that one of them just starts rolling across the seafloor, which makes me think they're not little sediment bioturbating mm. things, and they're not poo. They're probably something which is genuinely a round thing because they roll like golf balls across the seafloor, and they're piled in little places they're not mm. just they're not just accumulating there in the currents somebody's put them no, they there look, they did look like they've been placed which is weird because that was about 6,000 metres as well it wasn't us no. it wasn't us Should, are we going to talk about the, the moving target on the scanning sonar?
2: oh uh, mm, <laughs> I don't know are the Chinese going to come after us
1: or the Russians <laughs> if we talk about it I don't know <laughs> I don't know what to we're make of it. I, I told Tom about this the other day and we just, I just found myself sounding like a UFO nutcase. There's a lot of
0: UFO <laughs> stuff going on right now. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I
2: i also, I haven't mentioned it. And when you mentioned it, when we came back to the surface, I was like,
0: Alan, don't
2: say anything. Everyone's <laughs> going to think we're crazy, <laughs> And they're not going to let us dive in the submarine anymore. <laughs> the so we just not meant. mention that, leave it at that. It was definitely, it was big. I mean, it was a hundred meters away, 80, 90 to hundred meters away came up on the sonar bigger than our landers, which are a metre and a half high and a metre wide. I was like, what is that? So I reversed the sonar to scan past it again. And as it scanned past it again, it had moved like 20 or 30 metres and then swept back the other way again and it was gone. And we drove to
1: where we thought it was and nothing there. So it can only be UFOs, right? Mm. Subsea UFOs. That was quite freaky though, I must admit. And I do sound like a mad person trying to tell people all that. And they're like, oh yeah, but you must have been mistaken. And then I was trying to think where it could be, because it was obviously something big. It's like to get a return as strong as that, it's got to be either metal or air. Mm-hmm. I don't believe whales are diving to 6,000 metres. Uh, but then I don't know who else would have a vehicle at 6,000 metres, hundreds of miles away from anywhere without any ships on the radar whatsoever. Yes. So it can only be aliens. <clears throat> what would you place the size at? Like a couple of metres? Three metres? Ah, uh, Yeah, maybe three
3: metres. It's so you're in tell. sort of
0: glider territory. It could be, yeah. Uh, it would be bigger than a
2: glider, though. It would have to be. The diameter of it would have to be bigger than uh, it a it normal, you know, like the Garbia size. But maybe, maybe a 6,000-meter glider size, potentially, or a 6000 meter R&D. But it
1: sounds more maneuverable than a glider. Be, so. What are the odds, though? Even if one was oh, but just it was very autonomously bobbing up and down to be 100 meters off our about on and... one random dive in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It would have to be very close to the bottom. Yeah, I don't think it could be a glider because
2: it's way too close to the bottom. Mm.
1: Anyway, we, could, so we we we, must, we mustn't dwell too much too on this because we will get a reputation of being crazy people. But there was something odd on the scanning sonar, <laughs> and unfortunately, we're never going to know what it was. But it was enough to make a series of really spooky, weird dives in the middle of the Indian Ocean even weirder. <laughs> but it wasn't the only conspiracy that. Took, <gasps> wasn't that? Oh, the other conspiracy, yes. Yeah, so there was an incident where we were pointed towards very in-depth analysis by somebody on land about why we were diving in the Indian Ocean and why we were diving where we were. And some crazy people have decided that we could only have been looking for the Malaysian airliner. And they went into great lengths to track our AIS beacons and draw little maps every day and try to work out what we're doing. And I don't know if part of me thought it was really mm. funny, because it was hilarious we had one good night just everyone in the dry lab with a couple of beers just looking at this guy's feed (laughs) Uh, it was a good night out at the same time uh it's not cool when you think about what happened on the airliner and the number of people who are looking for some sort of closure for then people to start making up stories and it wouldn't take much to google the ship and google the people on the ship to realize that we do have a long intense history of going to strange deep places for scientific purposes only we're not Airline hunters and so on. So I don't know, it was a strange one, that. It was kind of funny, but at the same time, you've got to remember that it is quite a sobering thing, and I think it's a little bit irresponsible to start putting out public statements about what we may or may not be doing when people might get their hopes up, when we were definitely Mm -hmm. not. We don't have anything on board that could find that airliner anyway. That's the bottom line. Even if we did go and try and find it, we just couldn't. Yeah, and there you are. What we did find, though, is another spooky place. Let's change the subject. Top of the Terrace. I think it was the second or third hop. Up until that point, the slope was kind of like uh, steep and gnarly, lots of interesting things on it, lots of sediment, lots of rockfall. And then one of them, on, we just sort of went up 200 metres, came across to the slope again, and it felt like we had just sort of slid sideways into the back of our Gothic cathedral. <laughs> it was weird as. It was, yeah, very bizarre. We
2: were using our altitude so we can measure how far off the sea floor we are. We were using that as a bit of an indication about how close we were to the wall and then... You would see it on the sonar, but we were still, I don't know, nearly 80 metres off the sea floor, coming in, and this massive return came in on the sonar. And when I was like, that's just doesn't seem right, and it was bizarre, and we came in close and turned, and we were just facing this 50 to 70 metre high sheer wall. You look down through the bottom viewport, and it just disappeared into black. You couldn't see the bottom of it, and we just happened to be right near the top. And the same as these beautiful, big stalk sponges just hanging off the side, and it wasn't a straight line wall. It was like a big, almost like a two hundred to two hundred and fifty degree arc. We ended up in the middle of this big, crazy canyon kind of feature. We got some amazing imagery on the sonar on our three D, three hundred and sixty degree rotating sonar, which was amazing. It's funny, it's funny
1: that because the cameras on the sub are fixed and I was looking back at some of the videos of that and I don't think any of the videos really captured the scale no, and yeah, how ominous that whole area was. When you sort of look up with your own eyes and you see the whole thing, it's almost like the whole seafloor has collapsed on itself and then you're looking down through the other viewport and as you say, it just disappears into the void and you're just mm-hmm. like, what on earth caused this? And uh, it's really kind of difficult r- to capture that.
2: Yeah, I kind of felt like... If you were flying a helicopter in the clouds, and then all of a sudden you came across Table Mountain, it was yeah. just these crazy. In the dark.
1: In the dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I thought that whole. I mean, well, just, just to finish that off, we we did a couple of dives on the Escarpment, and then we made a run down to Perth, and the what we were going to do is a dive in Perth Canyon, but the weather was we got really beaten up between the Escarpment and the Canyon to the point where a multi-beam station came off the wall, or minus 80 started coming off the wall and <laughs> it got really beaten up but by the time we got to the canyon it was uh not too bad but it, the weather was marginal so we didn't do the last big dive but we did put the two landers down and i just think that one of the landed it was only a thousand meters i think but the landed data we got from that one i think is just hysterical it just makes me laugh there was just this mad crab story unfolding i've since watched back a lot more of the footage and there's
2: Strongman Strong man
1: crab. crab. There's a big I'm red tissue. crab that actually moves the land. It's that <laughs> strong. And fighting those were the crystal crabs. There's a lot of a lot of uh, aggro going on there as well. And at one point an eel comes in and grabs one of the big crabs and just basically bites it and then throws it off, <laughs> throws it away, and there's an enormous Tinophore just drifts past the camera. There's some decapod in there I've never seen before. It was just glorious. It was just you could just pick one of the super and watch it. It was fantastic. And that was us. That was our big Three month extravaganza, probably longer for you though. Tim. you've been on there for about a year now, right? Ah, uh, yeah, I have was a year and five days by the time I stepped off the ship. <laughs> wow,
2: I had a lot of fun in between. I can't complain. We had a layup in Hawaii for six months, so
1: you're still living on the ship, kind of, though, eh? or at least working on the ship. So,
2: yeah, I was still living and working yeah. on the ship. And that I like still the one I turned in and I
1: said to you, when, when's the last time you paid for food?
2: <laughs> I still am tethered. I've still only spent two weeks, more than twenty kilometers from this submersible in the last year, and still going. <laughs> and that two weeks was to go and sit inside a replica of the submarine and learn how to drive it. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's almost some sort of form of cruelty, isn't it? It's like we to let you out prisoner for two weeks, but you have to go sit in this grey box with a toilet at the back. <laughs>
2: I'm on. I'm on house arrest with the submarine. <laughs> <laughs> But it's all worth it because I get to have the adventures with uh, Vegemite and Haggis.
1: So Vegemite and Haggis are now actually branded on the back of the submarine. They are indeed. With a little Aussie flag and a little pilot Scottish pilot flag. names. Yeah, Maverick and Goose. <laughs> 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 so yeah, anyway, so there we go. So that was what we've been doing the last few months and that's why I've been away. And I think... The last three months has actually been amazing. What strikes me is how long ago the Philippine dive seems. The whole Galathea dive just seems like it was a lifetime ago, but it, it was the same job. <laughs> it didn't get off. It was only like, was it? a
2: couple of months ago, yes. Such a long one, eh? Yeah, it was definitely a long one. Yeah. It was crazy. The whole ship's crew and sub-crew and everyone else is changing out, and there's me, Alan, and Shane just there hanging
1: on for the ride, <laughs> not ready to let go. <laughs> it's part of the furniture. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite sad to go in the end, actually. I thought it was, uh, yeah, it's one of these things. That, what do you call it? Is it Stockholm Syndrome or something oh, like that? I still haven't traumatised. Yeah, it was, I thought it was a bit weird. I remember sort of sitting in Heathrow, just watching the world go by, thinking, what the hell? What, what? Oh dear, there's people everywhere now. <laughs> and you have to remember things like COVID. You're like, face mask, what's mm-hmm. the point in that? Oh yeah, of course, yeah, there's a whole thing going on there, right? Oh, that was a funny old time. But great fun. and That's what hell it's all a lot about. Of fun. So what we're going to do now, Tim, I'm going to say goodbye to you because last podcast we were on, we explained the point of doing the Philippine dive, which was the site where Galathea found a life at 10,000 meters Mm -hmm. and so on. And just after we did that, I wrote to a guy who I've been talking to for about a year who's a science fiction author. And he happened to be caught my attention because he'd written a book based around submersible diving and the Galathea and things like plastic. Remember the eco-friendly plastic bag at 10,000 meters and stuff like that. And so I yes. wrote to him just after we did that dive, and went, "You never guess what? <laughs> it's like see all that stuff you wrote in your novel." Well, we kind of, kind of did a lot of that, uh, and <laughs> in some spookily what coincidental are the names in the books. Well, this is—I'm going to ask him about this because he's got a marine biologist in there. Do you know what his name is? Uh, the professor. No, it's closer than that. Not- he's called him Jamie McAllen. He calls him what? An Alan McJameson. Jamie McAllen. Yeah. Yes, the Scottish marine biologist are- who comes on board to do the sub science. And he's Scottish, yeah. Um, why, the, why the dumbfounded was, silence?
0: Any resemblance to people living or dead is purely coincidental.
1: <laughs> I'm just wondering if it's a, a stalker vibe or not. You need to see what this guy
0: does first.
1: <laughs> oh no, he's to be. I've I've read a draft of the book, and to be honest, I I say he's the true hero in the book. Really you know, yeah, unbiased. He might not be the hero, but really, when it's inferred that he's really the hero, as always, right?
0: He's just very modest.
1: Yeah, so we'll give him a call in a minute, see what he says. So, Timmy, thanks for the last three months. It was ace. And we'll get diving again soon at some point, I hope.
2: I hope so. If not, I'll have the Barbie warmed up, ready for
1: your arrival in Australia. Aye, I won't be long. Good lad. Just got the. Well, it's been a hell of a lot of fun. Two weeks quarantine first. Sure has. Uh, Yeah, and that was Tim. Tim Vegemite McDonald. And... You know, we're talking there about the Galathea and the Philippine dive, and we've spoken a lot about plastics before in the past, and everything else. And about a year ago, a science fiction author contacted me about some research for a new book that he was writing. And it was funny because he uh, he includes a lot of, in this particular, I'll let him explain it better, but he's written a book, a science fiction novel, centred around submersibles and marine plastics and the Philippines and the trenches and Mariana Trench and so on and so on. And, and it was really fascinating to see his take on it and And the fact that there was a big chunk of what he's written in this book was very, rather similar to what Tim and I just did. So I think the best thing to do is get him on the line and give him a phone. So I'll pick up my phone again and give him a call. So today's second guest on the podcast is science fiction author John Quentin. Welcome to the show, John.
4: Well, thanks very much, Alan. Thanks thanks for inviting me. It's a a real pleasure and a privilege for me. I'm also doubly privileged and pleased because I'm the first real fraud you've had on amongst your cast list because I'm, <laughs> well, <laughs> no. We've all fraud got got in as much in, as, <laughs> I'm not an oceanographer. I'm not a biologist or a marine biologist. I'm not a deep diver. Uh, I'm not a crowned head of state or anything else, as everybody else has been. So um, there we go. Not necessarily oh, fraud. but right. I say no, so... Perhaps you're just expanding your repertoire.
1: Yeah, we like to get lots of different perspectives on all this, so this particular episode we're going to talk about Submersible, so we've already spoken to Tim McDonald, who's my partner in Crime Underwater, and we're going to speak to a couple of other pilots later on, but I thought it would be really interesting to bring you in on this, because we've been talking now for quite some time, actually, about your next book. So without giving away any spoilers, do you want to give us a quick rundown of what this book is about, and the types of issues, and the types of backdrops and technologies that are involved around this new novel of yours?
4: Okay, well, um, I'd started writing, really, when I um, didn't have a job to do. <laughs> it was a chance conversation with some other dads at an end-of-year party for the kids. And one or two things came up, and um, I thought, oh, they'd be interesting things a story, one of which was talking about plastic pollution. And um, I thought, you know what, actually, people are interested in things that capture a kind of spirit of the moment. So I started off, and it was going to actually, originally, it was going to be about atomic pollution and, you know, dumping nuclear waste and stuff. And like with all these things, I I have a a germ of an idea and a start. I don't plan it out because my brain's not wired that way. And it turned into plastic pollution and I started doing some research. And some of the research involved these bacteria that have evolved along with dumped plastic to start to digest it. They're looking to turn it into an industrial process. Obviously, when you do things like this, you mess about with nature, you know, you can get it wrong, can't you? So that was the general premise was a well-meant endeavour to solve a problem that actually creates an altogether different problem. And while I was doing my deep sea research, obviously your name came up in a lot of things, I bought your book, The Deep Environment, and then I thought, you know what? One of the good, things good. that good, good, good. helps you get a bit, bit of traction is to, <laughs> is to have a sort of bit of authority about it, that somebody says, yes, actually, you know, this is all right, or this is a subject that's dear to my heart, or whatever. And that's when I approached you, and I, jokingly, because I'd seen interviews with you, I thought, oh, you know, likes to have a laugh seems to me so and I said look just because I bought your book and read it doesn't mean you have to read mine but dot 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 and you came back to me (laughs) i got a title by then and said I'm your man yeah no you did and I I was amazed because I previously sent copies of my book to people who were other books who were kind of public figures interested in the subject and um, you know just get no response so I I was so delighted he said, yeah. Do you want to forward? I was That was going to be my next unbended um, name. You do a forward and you offered. Yeah. So we've been corresponding sort of on and off since then, it takes me a long time to get where I'm going. I have now finished and we're nearly ready to go. So what's it called? The Galathea Legacy. I had a hit upon that then unexplored Galathea depth in the Philippine Trench as being the site of the, <laughs> the, you know, where everything would go on. And I think that, you know, as soon as I said that was a title, he said, ah, well, you know, I am, uh, the Galathea legacy lies with me and you mentioned your um, connections with the Danish expedition of the fifties and you'd known the last surviving member and the likes. And that this you were pretty much carry yeah. on where they had left
1: off. When you sent me the draft of a sort of Philippine trench and plastics at Hades Zones and submersibles and everything else, you're like, this is this is pretty close to what we do anyway. And what I think find interesting about science fiction is is there's kind of two types. There's one which is so science fiction that It's just pure escapism, and it doesn't necessarily make you sit back and think. You just enjoy it, you know, like things like Star Wars and Star Trek and stuff like that. Mm. But then there's that very near future science fiction where so much of it is relatable to right now, and you can see how easy it would be for real life to just suddenly fall into that book. Is that something that you do consciously? Are you looking for the thing which doesn't seem that far away?
4: I do that consciously. It's a funny thing about science fiction. I think the early... Grandfathers of uh, science fiction, like H.G. Wells and so on, shied away from the term, actually. And certainly for me, I try to make it more fiction with science rather than science fiction, because I suppose most well, science fiction now is, it verges on fantasy. And there are too many sort of incongruities or things that I can't honestly, you know, read them and think, no, that, that can't be right. It's another way of also just sort of making stuff up and not having to research it and look into it. So it is that sort of near term. It's, it's definitely fictional, but um, I think everything that's in it is tangible.
1: You know? I think that, that's what makes it a good read because, because it is that close. It is something that you can totally see. Yeah, you
4: know, you can relate to it. I think, you know, I also saw some of the videos that were put online from the five deeps. You sent me a couple, you know, I, I was sort of saying, well, you know, that's what it's like down there. Try and describe that rather than make something up from my own imagination and be way off the mark because this is the thing, you know, people are actually going there now and are actually seeing it and there are videos online that you can look. You know, a sense of reality to it and something that said, you know what, actually, with only a little bit of a leap of faith, this could be the real thing. And to give it a sense of actually being there, writing the little bits about the patrols along the bottom of the trenches was actually done after I had seen videos of it and thought, "Right, well, that's that's what it's like.
1: In terms of writing fiction and novels and trying to keep it kind of relatable and, and real and stuff like that, I just thought it was really funny. On the last job, after having been to the bottom of the Philippine Trench and seen plastic, which is a very big component of the Galathea legacy, it's sitting in my office, a big grin on my face, emailing you pictures <laughs> from that exact point that comes in the book. But, you know, and I, I think that's in itself a really interesting form of science communication.
4: I think I probably even finished at least the first draft and got it to a, a decent sort of polishable state when you emailed me and said, I've been there, and actually, I was almost ready to go, and um, I had to make some subtle changes.
1: So, uh, going back to submersibles, the submersibles uh, feature quite a lot in your book. Is that something you've been interested in doing? If someone offered you a diving submersible, would you take it?
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of your previous podcasts talked about. Um, I think you made mention about tourism and you know sort of marine tourism and how you mm-hmm. know this is um, a lot of people. I think in the scientific community would say it's a bad thing. But then actually, you know, would I uh, be sanctimonious in saying yes I would I don't know, ocean or Hayden or call it what you like. Um, you know, that's a realistic possibility for people now. Absolutely. I, I saw James Cameron's visit, you know, and he sort of recorded himself going there and Clearly, you know he was very moved by it, wasn't he? In, you know his, his description—it yeah. was uh, going to another world and back in a day—and um, and I think it uh, galvanised many of his thoughts about conservation and whatever. And I guess even if you're going as a fraud, <laughs> um, it would it would do that. I think it sort of um, empowers people's minds to think about things and um, you know to communicate that.
1: So talking about sur- submersibles and, and this whole tourist business, I don't think anyone should be apologetic for suggesting that you should only dive in a submersible if you're there to do scientific research. I still think the the ocean's a place people can just enjoy. Well, there is this sort of weird negativity toward deep-sea tourism, but right now there are far more submersibles privately owned, sitting on super yachts and diving all over the place than there are the science. So already deep-sea tourism is considerably bigger than scientific sub-diving, and I still don't quite see what negative effects deep sea tourism would bring other than totally naturally inspiring people about it i see lots of positives but i'm not sure i can see any of the negatives
4: i think when you can bring home to people you know this is what the earth's like and actually our future depends on the healthy state of this part of the environment the more people know the better
1: well let's hope that the Deep diving submersibles become more of a common thing in the near future, regardless if you're scientific or non-scientific. I think the more people get underwater, the more society as a whole will appreciate what's going on on the planet. And, you know, the manganese nodule field is a good example of that. We just talked to Tim about that, and it's not like it looks on the internet. When you're actually there looking out the window at it, thinking, what on earth is this? How did this ever exist? And then you think that, you know, potentially we're just going to destroy it. It's a very different emotive response you get than being preached about it on that note i think we need to go and speak to someone about how many privately owned submersibles there are in the world and have a look at the the luxury sub market and see where the sub industry as a whole is going and for that we're going to give patrick lahey a phone at triton submarines so in the meantime john quentin thank you very much for coming on the deep sea podcast it's been fascinating thank you very much
4: Well, it's been a great privilege. A final little plug. I'm aiming to get the book out on or around the 21st of July. It'll be available on Amazon. I have a website.
1: www.johnquentin.com. There you go. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Cheers, John. Our next guest today on our special Submersible episodes are two legends in the deep-sea submersible field, and those are... Mr. Patrick Lai and Mr. Frank Lombardo. How are you doing, guys?
5: Very well, thank you, Al. Pretty good, Alan. Cool, cool. So
1: starting with you, Patrick, you've had quite an interesting and colorful career in terms of the amount of time and the variety of ways in which you've spent underwater. Could you give us a quick sort of a uh, brief history of your underwater career?
5: Sure. Happy to do it. My underwater career began when I went to commercial diving school. I was uh, 19 years of age. And shortly thereafter, I began working for a commercial diving company in Santa Barbara, California. And early in my career, probably about two years into it, when I was about 21, I was asked if I'd be interested in operating a sub, learning how to operate a sub, which I eagerly and enthusiastically uh, said yes to. And have really been working with human-occupied vehicles or submersibles ever since. I'm now 59, so I've been doing that for. Probably a lot longer than I should have been doing it, 38 years or whatever. But I love it. I'm passionate about these underwater vehicles and the places they can take you. And I feel quite privileged to have had a career spanning nearly four decades doing it. Nice. And Frank, how did you get into subs in the first place? I've never actually
1: asked you this.
6: Well, I also started as a commercial diver very young. I didn't go to a school. I was trained on the job by a company in Fort Lauderdale that was uh, accredited to train divers. And from there, I actually went to school for uh, marine electronics, basically a technician course. And after that, worked with marine electronics on ships and also did quite a bit with uh, Harbor Branch Oceanographic, at which time I was able to start working for them on their sub crew and uh, worked with the Johnson Sea-Link submersibles and the Clelia boat uh, for 16 years. and. After that, worked offshore in the ROV industry, and then nicely now, I'm back in manned submersibles again. But yeah, again, it's been around a 30-year kind of thing for me, too.
5: Instead of those hateful, soulless vehicles that don't have people in them. <laughs> <laughs> They're cold, dead eyes on the seafloor. Yes.
1: <laughs> so the other thing we've just been discussing with some of the other guests this morning was manned submersibles and new use in science and everything else, but... The one thing I was surprised at when I started working with you guys was the fact that there's probably a lot more submersibles in the field which are not scientific at all. I didn't appreciate how big the sort of private sector, the commercial luxury market is for
5: submersibles. Roughly speaking, how many do you think there are out there? That's a good question. I can say that there are about 19 Tritons out there, but there are many others because we have competitors, even though they build a vastly inferior product. (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm but yeah, so I, I would say there must be, you know, 40, 50, maybe 60 uh, human-occupied vehicles that have been built for recreation. But it's not quite as simple as that, because although they've been built for recreation, many of our clients actually use their subs for a lot more than just, you know, going down and having a jolly. Many of them are using them for legitimate scientific research projects, for filming projects. And the things that are being done in some ways remind me a little bit of what happened in the 60s when there was a lot of private funding for marine science research. I mean, let's face it, you know, Al, you probably better than most people know that the government budgets for marine science research shrink every year, Hmm. but private funding is critical to the future of marine science research. And certainly our clients are a great example of that. We've got a number of clients who are very prominent in marine science research and are doing some really... Fantastically exciting stuff with their subs. And we're delighted to be part of that and even happier to see that human occupied vehicles are once again an important tool in the toolbox. Do you think there's going to become more? Do you think manned submersibles are on the up? I do. I absolutely believe that human occupied vehicles, submersibles, are becoming an increasingly important tool. It doesn't mean that ROVs aren't another essential tool, and AUVs and many other things, landers and so on but as you know from your experience in diving in a human occupied vehicle you know your ability to take information in in real time and to see things happening and make decisions based on that is really an incredibly effective tool for collecting information collecting samples so to me they are going to continue to increase in in numbers you know whether it's a for the purpose of recreation, you know, so somebody that has a private yacht that wants to go and see what's underwater, or that somebody decides to do something more, which, as I mentioned, many of our customers have done, they may have started out with the intention of using the subs recreationally, but they quickly realized that the submersibles are quite versatile, and they can be equipped to do a wide range of tasks underwater. And that's where the fun begins. Yeah. So speaking of fun, Frank, all those years in the
1: Johnson Sea Link... Is there any particular dive that sticks in your mind as being one of the best you've ever done?
6: Uh, there are quite a few, but one of the coolest things I can remember was uh, a dive with Dr. Edie Witter. We were supposed to be doing bioluminescence study, but we were in the Bahamas and came across a big female six-gill shark ready to give her pups. And wow. we're, I was able to put the sub right on her tail as she was swimming, and we filmed her giving birth. Wow. Which apparently that's <laughs> the first time that had been done. It's probably the only time it's been done, right? As far as I know, I've never heard any others you know, having done it. Well wow. it was amazing. It was something very, very cool that I was really privileged to see. Wow, that's incredible. What about you, Patrick? What's the one that stands out for you?
5: I think it would be difficult to distill it down to a single dive. You know, I've been fortunate doing this for nearly forty years to have had some really memorable experiences in submersibles, you know, whether it was being part of the Space Shuttle Challenger recovery effort in 1986, or diving to full ocean depth with you or or with uh, Jonathan Strube. But I think from from the standpoint of something that really made an impact on me personally, the dives that I did in Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands with the scientists from the American Museum of Natural History, I think it was back in maybe 2015 or 2016, Mm -hmm. We're really incredible, and I think we're a great demonstration of why a human-occupied vehicle is so powerful. We were doing a vertical transect from 1,000 meters and then stopping every 100 meters, capture that vertical migration that you're so familiar with. And I think around 700 meters, we were doing it in total darkness, and we were striking a high-powered strobe from inside the submarine in the 100-meter increments when we came to a stop. And I think around 700 meters, and I set off the strobes. It lit up the water column as far as you can see in all directions. Of course, you're sitting inside of a transparent pressure hull. And the two scientists that were in there with me, I think it was Dr. Vince Pierbone and uh, David Gruber, both of whom were with the American Museum of Natural History at the time, were just completely awestruck by the sight. And I remember saying to them both, I said, so can you imagine what kind of an imaging system could ever capture what it's like for you to sit here now in this sub and look out and see what you're seeing? And both of them agreed that it would be an impossible thing to achieve. I mean, even with the most advanced imaging systems in the world, there's no way that you could have duplicated what it was like to sit in that chair and see this incredible spectacle of the entire water column lit up. And then one of the coolest things was I grabbed a flashlight, and I flashed the flashlight a couple of times. And off in the distance, an animal flashed back the same number of flashes. (laughs) And the scientists, <laughs> and these are like you, Al, you know, these are PhD scientists, you know, very sort of uh, highly educated people. And and I think one of them said, Did
3: you can see that? <laughs>
5: uh, and, you know, it's that type of, you know, a profound impact that really underscores the importance of the submersible, because that's something that you take away that will absolutely change your perception of the ocean forever. And, and that's where human-occupied vehicles really stand out. It's funny, I was saying much the same to uh,
1: Tim about one of the last eyes we did on that last job about halfway up the escarpment and we went to this place and it was just three-dimensionally just really bizarre and really spooky and really quite striking. And going back and looking at the videos, uh, none of it does it justice. You don't I even get a sense of, of scale or, or the feeling or just this sort of magnitude of what, where
5: you were sat. And yeah, it comes back to that thing. You just can't record that. You can't. And so whenever anybody asks me, you know, because you often encounter people that say, oh, well, you know, you don't really need human-occupied vehicles. You know, they're dangerous. There's no point in putting human beings at risk, you know, and so on. And I I say, okay, well, then let me ask you a question. Imagine, you know, your your wife is going to give birth to your child. And, you know, you can be in the room physically present. You know, the baby is born and they hand her or him to you. Or you could just Hire like a videographer to record it for, and you can watch it later on the TV. What do you think would leave a more (laughs) lasting impact? Exactly. uh, I think that is exactly what we're talking about. That is the essence of the human presence on the site with our senses, able to drink in that information in ways that no imaging system, no sensory system could do. So, on that line, it's all about that experience.
1: So, go back to Frank again. If the shark Thing is the best dive you've ever done. What's the most frightening or the worst dive you've ever done, or the one that you just wish you'd never get, got
5: inside? That list is probably long, too. But
6: <laughs> yeah, we have a saying in the submersible community that, you know, oh, your job must be amazing. And, uh, yeah, it's hours and hours of boredom punctuated by seconds of sheer terror. <laughs> so... Um, well, you know, I've uh, as all submersible pilots, you'll eventually get to a point where you are going to have a bad dive, you're going to have something go wrong, and your training, hopefully, is if it's been done correctly and you have the experience, will just kick in automatically and you will take care of the problem and make it safe again, continue the dive, or at least to surface safe. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had a couple of those. I've had a dive go hypoxic from a sample that was opened in the sub that shouldn't have been. Water sample was taken <laughs> just <laughs> but, a little hydrogen sulfide. Yeah, it was a little, uh, yeah, yeah, uh the, the grad student that was uh with me actually, uh, he, he messed up and just didn't tell me about it, so <laughs> yeah. But those kind of things happen, or you get the dive where you're just totally blown out with you know, no viz, and it, it's just not enjoyable. And yeah, a lot of times it's better off to just call those dives and come back up, but. Then again, you have scientists that want to stay down is their chance to dive, and so you try to accommodate as best you can.
5: But yeah, things go wrong, and you fix them. So no, of course, you're going to have, as Frank says, you're going to occasionally have a dive that doesn't go according to plan, where you have a problem that you know forces you to abort it. That's just the nature of the beast. The good thing is subs, submersibles, human-occupied vehicles, particularly ones that are accredited, certified as the the Triton 36002 is a limited factor that you dived in, Al. It's a it's a fully accredited vehicle. It goes through a really significant barrage of tests and so on before it's qualified and certified to carry people. And as a consequence, you've got a lot of backup systems, a lot of redundancy, a lot of safety inherent in the craft. You know, people think nothing of getting in their car and you know heading down the street, and you're probably several thousand times more likely to have a problem. Uh, in that situation than you are diving in the submersible. I think, mm. you know, they are incredibly safe vehicles and I don't have any hesitation in diving in them. Of course, you have to exhibit good judgment and common sense as you do in any circumstance, but they are absolutely safe. They're incredibly fun and they allow you to see a part of our world you simply can't any other way. So what's next for Deep Subs then?
1: Do you know, in Triton, you've got the Deep View, which is a kind of shallow water fun bus. <laughs> and there's, there's a casino one, right? It's got a poker table in it. And um, There's the scientific ones. There's the uh, Titanic concept design and stuff like that. I mean, is it just about expanding the diversity of vehicles to fit whatever market it may be, or is there something within the whole industry that really needs to be addressed to open it out? Or you where know, where is the future of man
5: subs? You know, we've sort of driven a wedge into a, a room and we're kind of opening it. And what we're discovering is that there's a whole range of people with interests that are different, as you might expect. So. You know, at the end of the day, Triton Submarines is a design and engineering firm. We often are challenged by our clients and their requests. So often a customer will come to us, as they did, for example, with the the Triton 3306. Customer loved the Triton 3303, of which we're building our tenth one now, liked it so much, but said, Could you build one that would carry six people? Well, it's an easy thing to ask, but it's not such an easy thing to deliver. We had to go back to the drawing board and discover if we could build a sphere. As big and as thick as would be necessary to carry that many people to that sort of depth. And we were pleased to see that with the advances that have been made in materials technology, we could actually deliver on that request. Mm -hmm. Similarly, with Project RevOcean, another really incredibly exciting program where they want to have a sub that could dive to 7,500 feet, 2,300 meters, that could carry three people again, an unprecedented achievement. We've just completed the sphere for that sub, which is going to be 320 millimeters thick. I'm talking about wow. a sphere that's almost 13 inches in thickness, for those of you who still use the biblical units of measure. And and it's a just an incredible thing to see how far we've taken it. But what we love to do at Triton is push the envelope. And often those opportunities are created by our clients and their desire to do something specific. For example, you know, Victor. Victor came to us and he wanted to dive a submarine to the deepest point in each of the five oceans. And when he approached us, you know, it wasn't really a very fully formed idea, but it, it challenged us to come up with a concept design, which we presented to him after a year. And then, you know, to our surprise and delight, you know, he signed a manufacturing contract, which took us two years to complete. And the rest, as they say, is history. But those opportunities, which are afforded to us by our clients and allow us to innovate and create these type of new submersibles, is what I enjoy most. I think I can say everybody here enjoys that challenge the most. And I do see that we're going to continue to push the envelope. So, what's the future? Well, I personally would like to build a sub that could carry uh, two or three people to full ocean depth that had a transparent pressure boundary. Imagine Mm. you as a scientist. How much more impactful, how much more information you could drink in if you were sitting inside of a transparent pressure boundary. The challenge is that, you know, we can't do it with acrylic, which is the material that we will be using in our subs all the way to 4,000 meters. So if we want to go to 6,000 meters and beyond, maybe even to 11,000 meters, we'd be looking at using glass as the pressure boundary material, which uh, I know that many people may not think is an appropriate or a suitable material, but actually, it's really exciting the possibility of building a sub like that. You know, I think it would be one of the most important subsea technology developments of the age.
1: That's interesting because we spoke to James Cameron a few episodes ago, and at the end we asked him, "Is there anything you would want? What's the next thing in deep sea exploration?" And what he said was a full ocean depth glass sphere, like you just exactly what you just described. Yeah. That was his, that was yeah. his wish list.
5: Well, actually, it is James who you know, it was back in 2011 when we first presented. Our concept for glass pressure hull design. This was before he built or completed and dived the Deep Sea Challenger. And I think, you know, like everybody, certainly somebody like Jim, who is, you know, a, a kindred spirit, you know, he's somebody who loves the ocean and is really interested in the things that are happening in it. He recognizes, as anybody does, how much more, you know, you could do and accomplish and see with a transparent pressure hull. And, and in fact, yes, he's expressed interest in being a customer. And in fact mm. our hope is that we can build him a pair of six thousand meter rated glass pressure hull equipped subs that can dive to six thousand meters. He's the wow. the perfect person to, to use a craft like that to its maximum potential. Cool. Well guys That's thanks very easy. much for that. It's been wonderful
1: we'll to finally have you on board because 'cause it's been we're on episode thirteen now. So uh, it was about time you guys were on.
5: Excellent. All right guys. Well have a great rest of the day and an excellent weekend. Thanks, Al. All right. Cheers man. Yes, Frank.
0: Of course, as ever, we're going to hear from the legendary Don Walsh. But how on earth is Don's entire submersible career going to fit in five minutes? Hello,
3: I'm Don Walsh, explorer and oceanographer. Today I'd like to talk about another manned submersible sector, tourist submarines. These are large manned submersibles that can carry up to 64 passengers. These are not to be confused with those used in boutique operations, uh, where you're just taking two or three people for a dive, or on board private yachts. We're talking about large submersibles that can carry many people down inside the ocean. The first practical T-SUBs, I call them T-SUBs, began their operations in the mid-1980s. About that time, I started consulting in this area and have actually piloted for them on test dives. Atlantis Submarines in Vancouver, Canada pioneered this business, building the first practical T-sub in 1985. Eventually, they built 14 of the Atlantis series, ranging in passenger capacities from 28 to 64 passengers. Most of them were 48 passengers. They built their last sub in 1994, and 10 are still operational today. By the mid 1990s, more than 50 had been built and put into operation worldwide. However, most of the operations failed by misreading their market potential. This is because most of the builders and, op- and operators did not make detailed site surveys, so most of the startups failed. Like the first three rules of real estate, the key factor in submarine operations is location, location, and location. And really there are only a few places in the world that are suitable to uh, support this kind of operation. Now let's look at the generic tourist submarine. I mean by generic, is just sort of a a typical one. They will have 48 to 50 passengers, plus two crew members. The pilot's up front behind a large acrylic hemi dome that actually makes up one end of the pressure hull, huge viewing window if you will. The second crewman is in the back for safety and also as the naturalist narrator of what's going to be seen during the dive. Most of them have a depth capability of 150 feet. You really don't need to go much more than that because at 100 feet, there's a definite extinction, if you will, of color in the ocean. The first color to uh, go away is red. And in fact, uh, what some tourist submarine operators do is they'll put a little smear of lipstick or red crayon or Sharpie in the palm of your hand. And when you get down to about 100 feet, you'll notice that it's almost turned black. And at 150 feet, it is totally black. You have no red left. So to see all of the colors and such that are involved inside the ocean, getting down to 100 feet is quite adequate. 150 feet is perhaps more for bragging rights. The T-subs are fitted with uh, a series of large viewports so that almost every passenger on board as a private viewport, and some of these are up to 30 inches in height, so you have a very good view outside during the dive. A typical dive will last about 45 minutes of actual submerged time, and the dive experience is enhanced in many places with the creation of artificial reefs, a used uh, aircraft, airplane on the seafloor, or some other thing that creates an artificial reef that will bring in fish to be viewed by the passengers, and in some cases, they even have a diver that will come down and hand-feed the fish, so you've got lots of those wonderful Kodak moments. Today there are only two companies in the world that uh, still build tourist submarines, one in Finland called Moby Mar, and the other in the United States, the Triton Submarine Company. Has it been a good business? Well yes, if you know what you're doing. An Atlantis operation, an optimum situation, will do up to uh, 10 dives a day, and at 48 passengers per dive, and at about $100 on average per person, it's pretty darn good business, but you have to be in the right place. And Atlantis, throughout its history, is still operating these 10 submarines. They've carried 12 million passengers with no serious incidents other than a few slip and fall accidents. This number of passengers is greater than all the crews of all the Navy's military submarines since the first naval submarine became operational before World War I. No diving training is required to permit almost anyone to visit the inside of the ocean. So next time you're in an area where one is operating, do it. You'll be glad you did. Thank you for listening.
0: That concludes this submersible special of the Deep Sea Podcast. We'll deep see you next time, and we abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company Amata Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that
3: as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. Hi, Mum. Yeah, you're watching.
0: Yeah, this this no, this is the episode I'm on. I'm on this one. I don't know. I don't know. They they recorded, like, hours and hours of footage, so I don't know what they used in the end. Oh, this is it. This is it.
6: This is my bit. The first to arrive are specialist seabed scavengers. Hagfish
0: they're quite gruesome, they'll actually burrow right into the carcass. Difficulty in doing that is, of course, you're getting deeper and deeper into the flesh, so you're having trouble breathing, but they can breathe through their anus to overcome that.